I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's a, a pleasure to be here and to talk about this book. And I thought um, I might start just just sort of introduce the book a little, which has um, these kind of three extraordinary presiding thinkers, um, Camus, Freud and um, Simone Weil. Uh, and I think we'll talk about each of them in the course of our conversation. But I was saying just before we started that I found it, I found it, the proof arrived at my doorstep. And I, uh, it was sat on my desk and I thought, I really don't want to start this book. Um, not because I don't want to read your writing, which is always um, extraordinary and always stays with the complexity and the difficulty and really gives us sort of pat readings. But because in one sense or another, all of these thinkers are in their own way sort of virtuosically unbearable, um, interested in things that are difficult to bear. And of course, the organizing theme of the book is the plague, the pandemic, what we've just lived through. And so I thought maybe we could start there with the question of the unbearable and the way in which these thinkers ask us to approach it. And these pieces, I think, were written in the course of or immediately after the pandemic. And maybe we can start with why these three? Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you, James, for being in conversation with me. I really appreciate it very much. Um, The plague was written right very, very early on. And the reason why I wrote, not the plague, the book, the plague, the essay on Albert Camus' novel, and the reason why I turned to it was for a kind of comfort, Um, and because the sales of the book had rocketed in the first months of the pandemic, um, as if it was something that people needed in order to think with, in order to think with something which precisely felt unbearable, over the top, unconceptualizable. And in fact, when I put these essays together, I realized that in each case, I've been encouraged to write about something which otherwise I would not have been able to think about. So that's the pattern that runs through the book. And the question of what's unbearable became so pertinent from the get-go because the first thing that happened was that the fact of death which we all spend our time, especially in Western culture, as Walter Benjamin famously wrote about, pushing to the margins of existence. So there was a time, he said, where there was no house which didn't have a room in which somebody had died. But by the time you go well into the 20th century, that consciousness and presence of death has been suppressed or silenced or excluded. He also said in his famous essay, The Storyteller, that there was a time when all writers took their authority from death. So he was describing a kind of pathology of our inability to think about it, which is always summed up for me by the joke that Freud gives in Jokes in the Relation to the Unconscious of the husband and wife sitting together, talking about their future. And the husband, I'm pretty sure, says to the wife, rather than the other way around, when one of us dies, I will move to Paris. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And the implication is that this is really not something that we can think about. And we spend a lot of time in Western culture pushing it to the margins of existence and believing that it is something in the nature of a phantasmagoria. Now, there are fightbacks against that. And one of my favorite examples is Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials and the idea that death is like your demon. It accompanies you on your journey. And it's something that you need to make a kind of peace with. It literally sits on your shoulder like the demon that is the shapeshifter in Philip Pullman's extraordinary book. 
So then I became interested in the pathways of writing, where what is being suppressed or silenced in the broader culture has a space to be seen and to be heard. I'll just say one other thing and then get on to the Camus. And that is that as if in response to the pandemic forcing people to think about something which we keep our sanity by not thinking about, right, in order to, um, it's as if in response to that new obligation, people like uh, Branson and Bezos started sending things, started sending spaceships into space in an attempt to master the limits of the universe. And there's one of these multimillionaires, and I always forget which one it is, who's actually pumping money into a project in Silicon Valley, which is going to make death a kind of accident or a vague memory of how people lived or failed to live in the past. So as if on the one hand you had the tragedy of mortality as completely unavoidable, and on the other hand you had people who were saying, now is the time to really reject it from general consciousness and from individual consciousness. Now, Camus' novel is absolutely extraordinary because the conversation of who is accountable for the play is the novel. It is the voices of various people trying to negotiate from Father Panalu, who believes that it is a divine punishment and wrings his hands and prays for the virtue of his sinners, through to Tahu and Rieu, and Rieu is the doctor, knows the, is the diarist. Tahu is the doctor who believes the only way to deal with the plague is through pragmatic reckoning and struggling with it as, as, as the enemy. And then there's Rieu, who is the Rieu is his diarist who he uses, that's right, there through At the end of the book, spoiler alert, you discover that Tahu has, in fact, been the person who's been telling the whole novel, okay? So they're all implicated in different ways in how to deal with this. And it says the novel is presenting us with a question about which place would you occupy? Where would you be in this? And forcing us to ask that question. So that's one of the things that I found so powerful. But I also just want to say something more personal, which is I studied it for my French A-level and it had a very profound effect on me. And I thought, this is an extraordinary book. But it, certain things in it just didn't strike me. And one thing that we were discussing earlier that just didn't strike me was the place of the women, or rather the non-place of the women in the book. And I couldn't believe it when I read it. And there was Taru with his wife who leaves the city when it is afflicted by the plague and whose mother who arrives to look after him. And that is their role. The women scream out into the night at the rate of death, or they are the carers, but they are also in lockdown, right? So suddenly there were echoes. It was as if he was anticipating something that was going to happen. And then I realized that for my mother's generation, there was a kind of lockdown that that generation of women was experiencing where your life was in the home. And, of course, we can get on to lockdown later and the dreadful effect it had on sexual politics and sexual violence. Sorry, that was slightly... No, no, that's... that's round, ideal. round in circles. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's worth saying one of the most kind of pointedly, explicitly political pieces in the book is precisely on the lives of women during lockdown and um, these, these accounts, which as you say, surely must have been foreseeable to, to, to specialists or to anyone who takes any interest indeed in the lives of women at all, that uh, enforced isolation um, will inevitably you know, give to abusers uh, effectively a charter for abuse. I suppose one of the things that struck me in the Camus essay especially, but, but in that one as well, is that lots of us, I think, during the lockdown during the pandemic itself, thought that the pandemic might do the work for us, right? Because it had precisely this effect of you know, bringing us face-to-face -face with the question of death, um, bringing us face-to-face -face with you know, our various advantages or disadvantages as we're, you know, for, for some of us, 
the experience of lockdown was quite pleasant. Um, not me, but certainly my partner rather enjoyed it. Um, you know, he was on furlough. Um, nice middle-class life. Fine. Um, other people had unbelievably horrifying um, experiences of lockdown. Other people, you know, their lives changed very little. Yeah, they were still Depends at work. on where you were, yeah. James. Right. So um, there was a poster all over London during the pandemic which said abusers always work from home, right? Which I thought was one of the most powerful posters that was uh, up and running during the pandemic. But it does bear pausing and thinking about the fact that the only person who broke lockdown, which was Dominic Cummings, uh, publicly and unapologetically, as it were, was at least partly responsible for the policy, right, which he himself then violated. And it's as if the government could not see that enforced lockdown would give men a license basically to kill. The idea that home is the safe place, leave home and you could kill, that was one of the posters as well, if you leave home others will die. But the idea that you might die in your home because you were locked inside it was, became one of the taboo aspects of what was going on. The question of inequality, I think, is absolutely central because Camus says the plague will strike and strike again and again and again as long as the social arrangements on which cultures rely are subject to putrefaction, inequality and cruelty. And that is one of the things that we witnessed, which is that, if, I mean, two images that stay with me, everybody has their images, but one for me is the corpses burning on the streets of Indian cities, right, which, of course, did not happen at the heart of Europe in the same way. There was a little bit in Italy, but the place where it was most visible or the place that people chose to push it forward on the media was India. And the other thing that really struck me was, and this is where war and pandemic become linked and Camus famously says that the two experiences for which people are never prepared in life are war and pandemic. They're useless with both because they, they're an insult to the idea of their own durability. The other images is the woman who was sitting on her balcony in Kiev and she was picking up the shards of glass that had shattered in her apartment on her balcony and what she couldn't see but the cameras could see is that the whole of the basement of the building had been blown out and it was a matter of minutes before the whole thing was going to collapse. And then there was the question of the idea that if you're in, living in a slum, the idea of hand sanitizers or social distancing are jokes, right? They're complete and utter jokes. So I think one of the amazing things about the pandemic is that it just exposed the fault lines of a racially... Europe versus non-European, America versus the rest of the world, global south versus the rest of the world. It just exposed those cruel inequalities in a way that everybody had to pay attention. But one of the parallels you draw is with the Spanish flu, the, the huge global influenza epidemic at the end of World War I, part of the end of World War I, that um, endured for some time afterwards. And one of the, the points you make is precisely that this is, this is or was a forgotten epidemic. And we seem now to be you know, rather further into the process of forgetting precisely all these things. And you know, I suppose the question there is what thinking can do here to keep that fact in front of our face. You know, we're leaping, I'm leaping ahead a bit here, but you draw later in the book from Freud, who says that process of, of introspection is, you know, has resistance like trying to make something flow down the esophagus the, the wrong, wrong way. way. Or twisting your yeah. neck. Yeah, that yeah. amazing image where he's talking about the hostility, the public hostility to psychoanalysis. Yeah. Well, the question of what people don't want to think about has been as exposed by the pandemic, I would say, as the question of what we had to think about that we never wanted to think about before. And I think we were on a knife edge all the way through as to which way we would jump. And it wasn't something you definitively make a decision about. You oscillate, you're torn all the time. Uh, sorry, say again. Really, what you just said, James, I've lost the story. I, the, I, we're some way into the process of forgetting, so how do we oh, keep gosh, that? Oh, gosh, forgetting, yeah. yes, right. Sorry, I was forgetting that it was, about, <laughs> <laughs> it was about forgetting. Yes, well, all all the uh, special research centres that were set up to discover why the pandemic had hit in the way that it had 
and ways in which we were badly prepared and the corruption over PPE management and so on. Everything's been shut down, right? And I think there are two reasons for this. I think there's one, good economic reasons, which is that if we flood that much money into prevention of a possible future plague, the country's going to bankrupt itself even more than it is bankrupt now. I mean, that's just a fact, right, factually. Although it's so short-sighted in terms of what may or may not happen. But also it's a form of forgetting because everything now is meant to be okay. And uh, I think Johnson was the past master at this form of political rhetoric. I mean, he took 18 months to visit the families of the bereaved to agree to meet them. He first went to the wall under cover of night. His whole way of dealing with the pandemic was in terms of a kind of blustering ego that can master the awfulness of it. And here I do have to make a gendered point, which is Modi, Bolsonaro, Modi, Bolsonaro, Johnson, Trump, right? I mean, that image of Trump after he'd been on the antivirals and he stands on the balcony of the White House and tears off his mask. Or Bolsonaro saying, my people could bathe in excrement and they would survive. And you're thinking, and why would they want to bathe in excrement? I mean, where, where did you get that idea from? <laughs> People could bathe in excrement. Okay. That's a bit like him saying he had five, four boys and one girl because he failed to concentrate when he conceived the fifth and she came out a girl. Right? And this is the kind of person we're talking to. So I think it is impossible. I'm going to do something I shouldn't do, which is say forgetting is gendered, which is to say that it is to do with the affirmation of a always survivable ego that cannot admit its own precarity, as Judith Butler would say, its own vulnerability, its own mortality. And therefore, this awful moment has to be swept under the carpet. Now, interestingly, Sunak's about to be in big trouble. And guess what? You know what for? It was for eat out to help out, right? It was like, get everybody back on the streets. Let's all party. Well, he did it too soon and at too great a cost. And I'm sure you agree with me. I mean, he's always smiling. He's, he, I mean, he's, he's an, I'm afraid to say he's another of these blokes, right, who just think they can make it all fine. And I was saying to James a few moments ago that it's not for nothing that Mia Motley of Barbados and Jacinda Adhern of New Zealand and Angela Merkel of Germany and the Finnish uh, Mata Fredriksson, Matai Fredriksson, and the woman from Thailand, those women dealt with the pandemic, I really think in a different way, in the sense that they knew an unnecessary death when they saw one because they knew everybody was going to die. And therefore they knew what was acceptable, what was unacceptable, and they acted accordingly and didn't go into the same forms of denial. So I'm afraid the pandemic did bring out the rad fan in me. Um, <laughs> do, you, do, you think, do you think Theresa May would have handled it differently? No, it's totally fair. It's totally fair. I mean, there are always exceptions that prove the rules, right? Um, Although she has spoken out against Rwanda airplanes. Have I made that up? She has spoken. She has. has. She's had a few good moments. that's not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe maybe um, that, that question, the, the sort of return to sociality, it's an interesting avenue from which to, to kind of think with Camus here, because as you say, one of the things that's going on in La Peste is precisely this question of the extent to which one, one is oneself a vector of transmission. And one of the things that I found very hard to deal with as, you know, a reasonably sociable person, I have my hermit-like moments, but... You know, I enjoy being around other people, is realizing that the very fact of you know, quite basic human needs for social interaction were now also closely linked with the possibility of transmission. And, you know, I think that's one of the... So one of the things you, know, you mentioned in the book is that the, the critical history of reading um, Camus here is... It, you know, there's a lot of argument about whether it's a, a sufficient metaphor for the rise of fascism, for instance. And the absence of the Arabs. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it seems to me that, that, that you know, as, as not an allegory, but actually just as a, a way of thinking about um, the, the experience we've just gone through, it's much, much closer, much, much, um, you know, much, you know, in some ways rather more difficult. You, know, you mentioned the scene 
um, towards the end where um, Ria and Taru you know, go night swimming, and there's you know this astonishing moment of uh, you pleasure, know, of, of pleasure, of pleasure in the middle of death, mm-hmm. and and that's an extremely I think complicated and difficult feeling. And certainly something that, that I experienced, particularly towards the end of the pandemic, where you think, you know, where, how am I going to judge um, be, being in the world again? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's you know, perhaps one of the things that's most striking in your Camus discussion. I wonder if we should get on to Freud we should, and see yes. they. Yes, <laughs> I, yeah, I, thank I, I yeah. That's Maybe the way into Freud with this is, is to talk perhaps a little... Um, in your discussion for it is partly about sort of excavating the relationship between the passage between personal life and intellectual labor. Um, and I think anyone who's written about the pandemic has had to, to kind of grapple with that. What struck me when reading that chapter was just, in, in a sense, a methodological question um, about the role of something like psychoanalysis in political or social thought. Um, and I was saying before we came up here, this is a broad question, but... Um, the salience of psychoanalysis or the, the purchase that psychoanalysis has on contemporary discourse seems to me to be somewhat diminished you know, than the position it held, say, 20, 30 years ago. It may just be what I'm reading these days isn't what I was reading 20 years ago. But it seems to me that people reach for history or sociology or economics to explain uh, what's going on in the world. Should they be reaching for psychoanalysis instead? Well, I think people are still reaching for psychoanalysis, and I would like to thank Paolo Segal, who is here from New Yorker, for uh, welcome, for sending me two links yesterday, one to the new journal Parapraxis and the interview around its launch in America, which is a remarkable journal because it really does believe that um, the talking cure is the most creative way of dealing with unconscious conflict and unconscious fantasy and psychic ambivalence. And I would say mortality as well. Freud is brilliant. His essays, Thoughts of the Time on War and Death, which is about how cultures deal with death, including the so-called primitive who comes back from the war, sits outside his community and pines for the people he has killed, showing, I quote, a vein of ethical sensitivity which is lost to civilized man, right? So Freud gives the so-called primitive the moral advantage in relationship to how a culture deals with the deaths it inflicts and the death it has to undergo. And he describes it as the beginning of ethical life. So I think it's very important to see the way in which if you're in touch with the unconscious and you know yourself as a frail, contradictory, ambivalence, enraged, murderous, loving person. If you know all of that, then you're less likely to think your role in life is to have power, in the sense that Simon Weil talks about it, to exert that power and to silence anxiety. And given that we are living, as we were discussing downstairs, in a moment which is, is witnessing, not uniformly, but quite a lot, swings to the right, fearful for the next French election, as I'm sure everybody here is. But Maloney in Italy, for example, and Bolsonaro, the possible re-election of Trump or somebody worse, and so on, which is to say, you know, and Modi and Erdogan's re-election only this past week, there is a kind of resurgence of fascism. Not to say, another fear is that if the Conservatives lose the next election, that it's going to be somebody like Bradman or Patel or Kim Kevinoff, which is to say there's a real risk that the ultra-right will seize the Conservative Party, which will then lead to an eventual victory. I'm not saying this will necessarily happen. I'm not trying to be cruelly pessimistic. But psychoanalysis, I think at the end of the interview with the founders of Parapraxis, they say psychoanalysis is one of the best ways we have of talking about fascism because it takes from you the illusion of mastery over historical process, and it removes from you. Simon Weil says rich people have a tendency to believe that cannot help but believe they are somebody. Mm. That's what's wrong with rich people. They feel their advantage is justified, and they feel it gives them a certain power and authority. They will fight to the death to maintain it. That's me, not they. I'm just adding that in. So I would say that psychoanalysis is becoming more and more political, the more right-wing and concerning the atmosphere in all these places becomes because it, it, right-wing thinking 
is a kind of refusal of critical thought. It's a refusal to stop and think. It's a refusal of thought in the sense that Simon Weil says all thought is and love and thought are corrosive of the social order, and thought is the is is an exclusive form of freedom in restricted times. And I just want to give you a quote here from Othello. I know that may sound a bit weird, but there's a wonderful moment in Othello where he's trying to persuade Iago to tell him what's going on between Cassio and Desdemona. And I think I've got the quote here. I'm going to get it wrong if I don't <laughs> find it. So let me see if I can find it. Hmm. Yes. Good, my lord. Pardon me. Though I am bound to every act of duty, I am not bound to that all slaves are free to utter my thoughts. So Iago, who is the villain, is claiming the right of slaves not to give their thoughts away. And I think it's an absolutely extraordinary moment about the radical potential of thought. And so outrageous that Shakespeare puts this freedom of slavery to think in the mouth of the most evil character in the play. It's like it's like a hiccup almost, but it just gives another take on it. So Simon Weil believed this firmly, that the space for thinking... This has come up recently in relationship to a group I'm part of and co-founder called Independent Jewish Voices. And given, and Israel should have been another place that I mentioned in this swing to the right, I mean, it's absolutely clear. Given what's happening in Israel, we have to ask, as we ask ourselves, we found it in 2007, what is our role now? And one of the things that we felt was really important was to go on doing what we've done since we founded in 2007, which is to create a space for dissent. And in the, one of the latest issues of Jewish Currents, which some of you may know, it's a very progressive Jewish magazine, Ariella Angle has an article on the politics of grievance, where she talks about the way in which the victimization of Jewish history produces a kind of military response, which means that nobody else's suffering is visible. Okay. And she's talking about how that makes it absolutely impossible to have a conversation about justice, occupation, redistribution, apartheid. None of those things can discuss because the category of historic pain, literally, and grievance, moves everything else off the table. It's a psychoanalytic piece. It really is yeah. because it's talking about what leads people to block in identities which then seem so intractable and so inhuman and dangerous. I was going to ask you about the death drive. Maybe it's worth talking about Simone Weil. <laughs> Talk about one via the other, maybe. Um, because it is worth coming to Simone Weil, and, and in a sense, you know, for me, it, this is one of the reasons I was so excited to read the book when I eventually got over my um, strange internal blockage. Um, I'm... Uh, I don't know if you can talk about being a fan of Simone Weil. I think, it's one way yeah, I think you can, actually. <laughs> Two in um, the room, at least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I say I, I find reading her like approaching a neutron star, there's something incredibly dense, you know, that she sort of weighs, she sort of drops through the floor, she sort of bends mental space-time around her. You quote Camus, um, and he's writing about her book, The Need for Roots, which I think is coming in a new translation from Penguin oh, later wow. this year. Wow. He calls her, her work <laughs> terrible and pitiless. I wonder if you might tell us a little about the experience of reading Ve for that, for that piece. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> she was somebody who I felt I had a moment of reckoning that had been there for a long time, and I'd never read her properly apart from the Iliad or the Poem of Force. How many people in this room have ever read anything by Simone Weil? Oh, quite a few. Okay. She's a one-off, right? I think she's absolutely inspirational. And she's inspirational because of the failures of her thought, as much as because of what she does with it. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but a classic example is that she, she really did believe in the realm of the spirit. She was a mystic. And more and more, as she advanced through her life, it is not true that that move into mysticism declined her political commitment. If anything, it intensified it. 
So the first thing to say is that she takes the two poles that Freud is discussing in his essay on the death drive, which is the misery of the world and our internal responsibility for it, and she pushes them just about as far as you can go. So you go off. So politics and fighting in the Spanish Civil War and having a plan to parachute crack nurses behind the lines of resistance in France so they will tend to the sick and the dying. And she herself worked in a factory and she wanted to parachute herself in even though she herself was dying at that point. Okay, so on the one hand, she takes political commitment to this incredibly dramatic extreme. And on the other hand, she has a spiritual reckoning, which is a psychic reckoning, but one that takes you off the edge of the knowable world. So it feels, seems to me as if she takes the two spheres that I'm always interested in, which we call politics and psyche, and really goes to town on them and goes down paths that are very, very hard to follow. So if you take something like her concept of decreation, which is that God created the world by decreating himself, bits of himself fell off. So God is neither complete nor sovereign. So if you ask for God's responsibility for the ills of the world, you're asking the wrong question because he's not a tyrant. He's not Bolsonaro. He doesn't own the world. He actually sheds himself in the process of creating it. Now, that can either strike you as utter lunacy or it can strike you as not a million miles from the whole post-Freudian tradition of psychoanalysis, which says the aim of psychoanalysis is to shed the delusions of mastery of the ego to shed the belief that the ego is master in its own home, to shed the belief that you can control your mind or you can know your own thoughts. So Lacan famously said, um, Descartes said, I think therefore I am. Psychoanalysis says, I am there where I do not think to be. I am there where I am the very plaything of my own thought. So it's a radical decentering or decreation of the masterful ego that thinks it knows its own mind and its own place and can master the world. So I feel that she has this incredible capacity to push you just a little bit further than feels bearable, to go back to your point about what's bearable and what's never bearable. Just for the record, she didn't support the strike against Hitler to begin with because she said it would be meaningless to defeat Hitler unless France relinquished her colonies. Um, so she made a link between colonialism and Nazism, which if you make it today in the way that, say, Achim Bembe has made it recently, you will bring the house down, let alone the funding that will be withdrawn from your projects, which is to say you are not allowed to compare the Holocaust and Nazism to anything. You're not allowed to compare that atrocity with anything else. So when Achim Bembe just says, excuse me, in the 20th century there was colonial and imperialism, and there was fascism, and these are the ills of the 20th century, it, it is a scandalous statement to make. She was making it. Eventually, when he invades Poland, she goes over to the other side and she becomes, well, she ends up trying to fight for the resistance and dies in a London hospital on her way to do so. So um, she swings around completely, but her commitment is, is of an intensity. I think you said almost saintly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was saying, I think, she produces this kind of... I, I find the experience of reading her sort of admonitory, right? Like that the, you approach her work and there is at its base a sort of a, a, a total lack of irony and a total seriousness, a sort of zero-point seriousness that says, you know, I, I'm going to follow my thought where it leads and I'm going to embrace those conclusions absolutely fully. There is no difference no distance between thinking and life. You know, when she's very young, she's um, teaching in a, a lycée during the day and then getting the train hours in the evenings to go and teach classics to factory workers and then, you know, so barely sleeping you know, because she's, she's convinced of the importance of, of teaching and thought and, yeah. and these things. You know, as you, you, you quote her on factory work and the, the, her, her, her hatred for factory work being at least in part because it sort of, compresses and destroys the internal world world of the people who are doing it. And she knew this because she did it. She went and did it. 
Um, and so every time I return, think, think God, all the kind of violences and complicities that I'm, you know, more or less fine with, or that I yeah. live through. She's too uh, good to be true. She is too good to be true. I and mean, the point. But she's not. I'm going to say something. About <laughs> yeah. Go on. Go, go, go on. Go, go on. Jane. No, I was just going to say the point that she makes about um, Nazism's roots in Western culture as a whole is precisely the thing that is, it, you know, remains unbearable about her. Uh, and that that vein of thought, which you know has, you know, causes scandal, as you say, even to this day, it's precisely not that Nazism arises as a, as a completely unthinkable historical evil, you know, somehow outside the the uh, the, the society in, you know, in which it came to be, but is produced by and and one of the possible consequences and iterations of that social order, and she sees it absolutely clearly. Mm. Um, and I think those of us sitting in this room can probably think of that conclusion. Yes, that makes sense. But there are other conclusions of hers which are rather less bearable to Yes, us. okay. Um, she's a saint, but she's a saint with, the un- with an unconscious. So there's an incredible passage where she says, uh, when we have bad thoughts, we are so appalled by them that we eject them as if they were vomit. The trouble is that wherever we deposit them then swells with their effect and sends them back into our face where we have to try and resuppress them once more. This could be Melanie Klein on projective identification. It is remarkably psychoanalytic. But she also says we are failures and we stuff our failures into the attic where they wreak havoc. So it is an argument for a confrontation with the inner darkness of the self alongside the idealization of what a true political commitment could be. But when you say unacceptable, I think you're referring to her relationship to Judaism. And for those of you who don't know, she converted. She never identified as Jewish. She spoke out. Uh, she did not identify persecution of the Jews as the main crime of Nazism at the time that it was happening. She died before the full extent of it became known in 1943. She reputed her Judaism. She found it constricting. She hated it, but she, although she bought into Christianity, she never had herself baptized because she felt that that would be to give up her heretical status, which was absolutely crucial to her. But nonetheless, there's something about this which is chilling. And her niece, Sylvie Vey, um, who wrote this wonderful book at home with André and Simon Vey. André was Simon's brother, famous mathematician, and the father of Sylvie Vey. She says, why couldn't she see that the concept of caritas or charity or giving or care that was so central to the ethics and indeed politics of Simon Vey, why couldn't she see the line that ran straight through that to her paternal grandmother, who enacted it as part of Jewish giving? Jewish social conscience. Why did she repute her Judaism so totally? And it's all the more remarkable in that Sylvie Vey gives, Simon Vey gives one of the best analyses of why, for all our talk of care, and your piece on care in the LRB is a fabulous piece, James, which I just would like to mention. But for all the talk of care, it doesn't always work. People don't want to care for everybody and anybody, right? We're very selective about the people we actually want to care for. And she says it's because we're repelled by people who are vulnerable. We are disgusted by them. And we therefore have to take that objection back into ourselves in order to be able to care universally and for everybody. So there's, I'm not sure quite what the link there is to Judaism, but basically she repudiates her Judaism in ways, yes, sorry, in ways that underscore just how imperfect she was. But whether she would have been able to recognize that, I think, is a moot point, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's also there's something about that drive to universalism where like, she, she almost wants to shed all kind of historical particulars. And there's something very strange about her desire to... And one of the things we haven't mentioned, but often readers of they will point out that you know, she is not eating. She is interested in this process of kind of withdrawal and subtraction and decreation. And there's often a kind of imputed diagnosis or, or an explicit diagnosis of anorexia or kind of self, a desire for kind of self-destruction. And I, I, I don't think it's necessary perhaps for us to dwell on it, but it always seems striking to me that there is this sort of fragile body with this sort of iron mind inside of it. She's writing like 
reams of stuff in the last three, four months of her life. I mean, the the need for roots, for example, yeah. and the oblig- statement towards the draft of human obligations and the human and the sacred. Fabulous essays. She's writing them as she's dying. It's absolutely extraordinary. Well, I try not to go down that path as I try not to go down it with Sylvia Plath, yeah. which is to say the moment you press that button, you're going to pathologize the insight and you're going to take it away from them. And in fact, I did ask Julia Kristeva at one point. I said, come on, you must have written about Simon Weil. Where can I find it? I've got every book by Julia Kristeva. I thought, how come I missed it? And she said, no, it was too. She thought it was too troubling. She really? didn't want, it was too troubling. Yes. You know, she says, she says she is the color of a dead leaf or many people have treated her. She says to Father Perrin in her spiritual autobiography, likewise right at the end of her life, She says, you are the only person who has ever made me feel not degraded, not humiliated in my interaction with you. I mean, there is a kind of riven soul and tragic sense of self, which nonetheless goes hand in hand with her saying, never mind that we're going to perish so long as we've existed before we do. Right. So she has this. It's as if I don't want to separate them off. I don't want to do on the one hand or on the other. I think they fuel each other. And you have to take them both on board. But you, if you make her a basket case, then you'll, miss, you'll lose the plot no, I think that, completely. I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, the one depends on the other. I've just seen the time. Take yes. some questions. <laughs> yes. Um, thanks, that was great. Uh, the thing I wanted to pick up on was um, earlier when you were talking about sort of casting around for analogies and going back to Spanish flu. Um, one thing I found really, really odd was the kind of total elision of any other pandemic within that century. The fact that there was this kind of total forgetting that AIDS ever happened, for example. And then when it did come back, it was in this, I think, often quite kind of facile way of people just being like, everyone cares about this pandemic because it's not, an, and I don't think that was particularly useful either. Um, and I wondered if you could speak about the kind of process of, Sorry, everybody cares for this pandemic because... Uh, I think there was like a lot of... Um, when the sort of memory of AIDS did rear itself, I think there was then this quite facile sense that the only reason that we care about COVID, for example, is because it didn't just affect people who were already considered under, undesirable by society. And of course, that does kind of determine transmission, etc. But it, it felt a little too neat in a lot of ways. Yeah. Anyway, the question um, basically being, I wondered if you had... Any thoughts on the kind of uses or abuses of the memory of of AIDS in particular in trying to sort of navigate COVID-19 and sort of writing about it? Well, I wonder if it's a coincidence that um, It's a Sin, which I'm sure many people here will have seen on television, was screened, I think, during the pandemic, right? Uh, As if a kind of connection was being made and something was being forced on public attention that had not been given sufficient recognition. It was a kind of rebirth of interest. So that would have been the opposite of just thinking which one matters. The extent to which people hierarchize forms of suffering is really something that I think is worth thinking about. The Spanish flu killed more people than World War I and World War II combined, right? So as Lini says in her, I think her name's Lini, in her wonderful book, on the Spanish flu, it is an act of historical forgetting of huge proportions. And of course, it had nothing to do with Spain. Spain was the only country that acknowledged what was happening. And that was, which is really ironic, therefore came to be known as the Spanish flu, as if acknowledging it made it yours in some weird way. But the ability to forget, I mean, Rachel Whiteread has been asked about what should happen to the memorial wall. Uh, you know, the sculptress Rachel Whitetreed, and she said, time. We need time before we make a permanent memorial to COVID-19. Because if we do it too fast, it'll simply be part of the process of forgetting. So I would say that we're in that process where there's everything to fight for. I mean, at the end of at least two of these essays, I say there's going to be everything to fight for when the pandemic is over, by which I meant in terms of sexual violence, racial violence, inequality, and so on. But there's now another struggle, which is how this is remembered or whether it is remembered. And there have been letters, I'm sure people who have seen, there have been letters in the papers of people saying this is being forgotten. People are refusing to talk about it. It's disappeared. And it's kind of frightening that that is happening. James, I'm sure you've got things to say about that. Only that I'm reminded of the... um 
the astonishing passage in Sarah Schulman's book, Gentrification of the Mind, which is a book about New York during the, the uh, height of the AIDS epidemic and its aftermath, in, in which she says, we have no national monument. We have no monument to the dead of AIDS. There's the AIDS quilt, which is sitting in a box somewhere in the basement of the Smithsonian. You know, where is the accountability? Where is the public recognition that these people died um, in a way that was preventable and was, frankly, a national crime? Where is our monument? Uh, so this is a really coruscating passage and an extremely effective. Well, she's book. answered it. It's uh, because it's a national crime. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, the question of one of the you mentioned the book. In fact, that there is the question of incomplete mourning. One of the things that characterised the pandemic was the restriction on the ability to mourn. You know, the, the, the rights of mourning that, that we use to deal with death, to deal with the death of loved ones, were restricted and in some cases just impossible. And you know, it, it, has that been repeated on a, a national level? I mean, I, you know, it seems obvious to me on one level, of course it has. Um, but I don't know what that would look like. Um, you know, it strikes me that, that, in a sense, many of us endured the pandemic in particular, as an individual experience. Right? We didn't go through it together, however many nice conversations we had on Zoom. You know, we were sat in our houses, atomized and apart, and the very fact of sociality was a risky thing. Um, and so, the, you know, our, it seems to me there's quite incomplete mourning But this there. is a general pattern, because one of the things that I write about in one of the essays is the fact that people during the pandemic started coming forward to tell their stories so there was an explosion on the analytic couch of people having memories that they hadn't been able to articulate before, partly because analysis became socially distanced. I, it became phone calls or Zoom calls. And it was as if that distance gave people the ability to talk about things they hadn't been able to talk about before. But also it started happening publicly. Me Too would be a very good example, which is only if this is recognized will I ever have a modicum of freedom, right? But also other cases like the contaminated blood, HIV contaminated blood, which there had been no compensation for. And people became activists and fought for it. And now there is going to be some hugely, grossly inadequate compensation. But it went public. And the 1990s plane that was hijacked just at the outset of the first, uh, the outset of the Iraq war and British people were taken hostage. And nobody has spoken about it. In fact, it was on a spy mission. And Margaret Thatcher knew that the people on that plane were at risk. Completely silenced. And then suddenly a television program is made out of it. So it's as if this is an, I would say your question is ongoing. And it's one of the locuses of struggle. But it's very hard to struggle over something that's in the process of being silenced. But it's crucial. Yeah, thank you. Should we take both these questions at once? Or? Okay. I think I have my question. So, you were saying in the beginning that the right disavows death, and you gave some examples. I was thinking that there were moments in the past couple of years where the right was talking about death, which was seems to be in association with the left. So, anti-abortion activism, the left wants to kill babies. In this country, that the striking nurses, striking doctors want to kill patients... Stuff during the Black Lives Matter movement about revolutionary violence is about death. So there's like the death is the, the left is some sort of death cult, uh, whereas the the right is is a movement for life. The mainstream left, I would say, has been countering this by being like, no, you know, capitalism is about profit. We're about life, or the climate movement is all about life. Am I right to sort of is is there a suggestion here that psychoanalysis tells us that the left? might have to embrace its association with death and violence in a way. It's funny that Parapraxis came up because I was thinking that there were two authors who wrote an issue one of Parapraxis. One wrote this piece called The Lost D, where he sort of says this, um, the left, like, left liberal climate politics is all about life and abundance and um, like the Green New Deal visions, and that psychoanalysis teaches us that we need to actually embrace um, anxiety and these things. And Sophie Lewis, who also wrote for the first issue, wrote somewhere else that we should be talking about abortion as killing, and that there's not much to lose there. I wonder what, what does this mean for how the left relates to death? Um, yeah, okay. Should I take this question as well, well and then we well, can do... And then we'll, we can we'll do, end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll try to segue onto your question a little. Thank you for the conversation. It's about memorization and memory and disavowals and the death drive. Shall we, shall we ride that death drive? <laughs> um, and what strikes me to turn it upside down is there seems to be a disavowal that something will happen again. That's what deeply disturbs me. And I, I was talking to a psychoanalyst in Amsterdam two weeks ago, and he said, well, you, you know, Freud said the unconscious can't deal with death. So he says, I think that means the unconscious can't deal with dystopia, which is more pandemics, burning trees, migrating animals, migrating infections. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea. Are we disavowing the future possibilities of more of these pandemics coming along, which we have been warned about, because of pain of memorization? Memorization makes mourning very, very difficult. I just wonder what you thought. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, I would have said that the left, because it, I mean, I'm thinking here of Rosa Luxemburg, when she stood up to respond to people who were saying the 1905 Russian Revolution had led to bloodshed. And she said, you don't know what you're talking about. What leads to bloodshed are the conditions in the factory. Here she's very linked to Simon Weil, who's coming later. What linked to death are the inhuman working conditions under which Simon Weil will add, it would be preferable to die, right? So there is an argument on the left that it is a fight for a livable humanity. And Simon Weil says at one point, we want a world in which it will never be the case for anybody that it would be preferable to die than to live. And that's what social justice and equality is about, because there are whole swathes of populations who are dispensable people, disposable bodies, in the way that Wendy Brown would talk about. I think your question is brilliant, and I don't think there's a pat answer to it, except to orchestrate and think through how these things are being distributed. When you talked about, yes, abortion is killing, the thing that came into my mind was Leo Bassani's famous essay, Is the Rectum a Grave, right, where he says yes. That's his reply, yes. And furthermore, it's because the form of sexuality of the gay culture is or should be the opposite of bourgeois, proprietorial, controlling marriage relations. It should be always a challenge and a dangerous challenge on the outside of the normative culture. So that will be another way to go. But there's not going to be a simple answer to your question. I certainly don't have one. It was a brilliant question. Um, happen again. I would just want to add to that it's still happening. It hasn't gone away. 300 people are dying of COVID every week in the UK alone. Right. It hasn't gone away. But that can't be spoken about. And Freud actually said at one point, and this may be, it's not an answer to your question either. He said at one point that... Uh, we've had an experiment with the human species. It is maybe time to think of another pathway. He's not known as an ecological thinker. He's not, and he also says we have produced, this, he sounds like Hannah Arendt when he says this, we have produced methods of such perfectibility of mass extinction that probably the species are not going to survive. So there are moments in Freud's thinking where he really does think not we are destroying the planet, but we should abdicate. He uses the word abdicate. So you're raising some very big questions, which I think, I mean, I, I feel embarrassed that climate change has figured so little this evening, in fact, That's because it's, of course, an, if we're talking life and death and survivability, then that's what we should be talking about, or that's what perhaps we have implicitly, I like to think, been talking about. But those were two fabulous questions. James, do you want to come in? Uh, I mean, I need to say that I think there's a ambivalence or bifurcation or sort of dual meaning within politics here, right? So the the idea that that a political left could talk about and embrace death, well, no one's going to vote for death, are they? Um, but that, of course, is exactly the sort of inane response which characterizes British politics as a whole, which has become increasingly cut off from the very things that cause people to become political in the first place. 
And this is why I think someone like Vey is very useful. You know, Vey is one of those people who would refuse the idea that there is a kind of technique of politics which is more important than the thing that drives you to, towards the political in the first place. What a left politics that looks death squarely in the face actually entails is, I think, a tremendously difficult... Uh, and this is not me ducking the question. I think it's a tremendously difficult uh, you know, thing to contemplate, partly because it, it would require us all to live like Simone Weil, right? It, to say that, okay, well, actually, if I were to really think that I have a, a clutch of decades to do things, then... I really can't live in the way that I'm, I'm living now. And so it would require you, it would send you towards the, the radical fringes, which I think is where both Jacqueline and I tend to send our attention anyway, you know, to, to pull them in. I, mean, I don't want to, to banish myself there. But, but that's where it leads you, towards the extremity, to, to say, well, okay, then, you know, I'm, not, you know, I'm not in a kind of Rilkean sort of you must change your life sort of um, mode. I'm, what I'm saying is that, that it, it, requ- it generates a politics which addresses literally every aspect um, of the way in which we live. And, and which, you know, I think is fair to say, one of the questions I didn't ask you today was, was Simone very mad? She was very concerned that Charles de Gaulle thought she was mad. Um, I don't think it's an answerable question. I think in most senses it's not an interesting question. But I think that kind of politics risks you looking mad, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think we probably have to end it there. Which well, there's is, one more question. There's one more question. Just Let's this. just take the question. Behind you. I was just wondering whether do you see do you see the idea of sitting with the unbearable, uh, an individual experience, or something that it's a more relational, uh, collective experience. I think people live it every day. So are you saying, is it an interrelational thing or an individual thing? Mm. Both. You talked to a large extent about psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis, and that immediately makes you think about, it's a one-to-one conversation, process, ah. reflection, and I wondered, where do you see the okay, role of a collective okay. experience in trying to understand the unbearable and sitting with... Okay, that... W- I teach a course at Birkbeck called Freud in the World, which starts with me saying to the students, Freud was a social thinker. What kind of social thinker was he? And we read the essays on death. We read civilization's discontents. We read Moses and monotheism. So we go from the question of what is civilization, which he held in more or less steady contempt. You know, we go to the question of what is national identity, which he tore to pieces in his reading of Moses and monotheism. We look at what is a group, a group drives you crazy, and is the condition of a group is to expel to the outside the thing that you cannot bear and which you would like to completely exterminate. So my argument would be that psychoanalysis, even if it's a one-to-one session, it trails with it questions of social and psychic identity, which are totally implicated in the social structures in which we live. And for me, psychoanalysis is an analysis of the pathology of what Freud refers to at one point as white Christian culture, right? So I don't think you're ever out inside the consulting room. You're never just inside the consulting room. It brings everything in its wake. Has it been adequately attentive to that in all its incarnations post-Freud? Not always, but there are people who are really working on that now in ways that raise other complex questions, like, in fact, in one of the interviews I read in Parapraxis, they end up by saying, you know, what, what, what psychoanalysis touches on and discovers in the clinical setting are oppressive social relations. And the point is to increase the consciousness of the patient of those oppressive social relations of which they are victim and perpetrator. Now that turns psychoanalysis into something very different from what it's classically thought to be. And that is really being fought out at the moment. I'm sure on the pages of Parapraxis will be fought out. <laughs> And elsewhere. So it, it's a question, I would say. A really good one. Detect your inner Soissons Vitard. Soissons Vitard, yeah. I'll never, I'll never not be a Soissons Vitard. <laughs> I think that's a, a good place for us to end it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, 
visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.